know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than 4 bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only 3 bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1340, with guest Steve Smith. Recorded Sunday, July 17th, 2016. Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Here for your edutainment. How's that? I love it. For an hour or so. Steve uh, and Brendan are here. We're going to be talking patterns and anti-patterns and having all sorts of fun. But uh, first, we have a little business to do, don't we? Oh, we always do. Yes. Let's roll the crazy Please. music for Better No Framework. Awesome. <laughs> Dude, what do you got? Steve and Brendan, you can join us in this conversation because it was actually uh, talking to you that I first learned about this game called Werewolf. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, that's when we found out that Brendan's a really good liar. Yeah. And we, uh, I don't, can't remember if I ever played it with you guys, but you guys have certainly played a lot at your various companies. And uh, the whole idea about Werewolf, well, well, actually, Steve, why don't you introduce Werewolf? Sure. So Werewolf is is one of a number of bluffing games where uh, in that game, there are townsfolk and there are werewolves. And the werewolves know who the other werewolves are, but the townsfolk don't know who the werewolves are. And so each day, the townsfolk try and identify a werewolf by lynching that person. And if they're successful, then that person like turns into a werewolf and they know they got a werewolf. And if they accidentally lynched a, an innocent townsperson, then they just feel sad and they go to bed. And at night, the <laughs> werewolves uh, eat one of the townspeople. Um, and so the town gets smaller and smaller each night and each day as people are eliminated. Uh, and the, the whole point of the game is to try and identify from cues that people are, are picking up or, or saying, like, well, so-and-so wouldn't have lynched that person or this werewolf yeah. wouldn't have eaten that person, so it must not be him, and try and fool your friends. Right. And the missing piece of information is you just play this around the table. That's it. Just a bunch of people yep. sitting around a table. You don't need any hardware. You don't need any, not even paper, right? Right. Yeah, it works great, you know, outdoors, at a picnic, any any type of environment because there's no board. There's yeah. there's nothing to it. The only cards involved just say whether or not you're a werewolf. So it's a great way to uh, um, get a team uh, feeling comfortable with each other and basically figuring out who's a better liar. <laughs> um, so the reason that I wanted you to introduce that is because my Better Know Framework today is a, a Slack bot for moderating Werewolf. And there's a few of these, but this one is Slack Wolf. Nice. Yeah, this is from Chris Gillis, and it's on uh, GitHub. And I'll put a link to it. It's a bot for Slack. So after inviting the bot to the channel, you can play Werewolf, basically. <laughs> this is your... awesome. Isn't that cool? Wow. And the bot will tell you whether or not you're a werewolf and who the other werewolves are or something like that? Yeah. I assume it's integrating uh, like slash commands for this so that exactly. you can just type in what you're doing. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> so now we can sit around the fire at night with our phones, with our Slack clients and play <laughs> Werewolf. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. It's healthier that way. You don't have to talk at all or, or interact with the other people. Right. Oh, yeah. So it's it's an introvert's tool. You don't look quite as obvious when you're just sitting around the... You know, at a table, you know, typing on your phone, nobody realizes you're playing a game. So, I mean, you can stealth out in public and not seem like a nerd. 
<laughs> I knew you guys would like that one. All right. Well, Richard, uh, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 1226, the one we did back in December with Steve and Brendan talking about the software craftsmanship calendar. And this comment comes from Jan Patrick Hannon, who says, Collective code ownership is a great idea, but aside from the, quote, hey, don't touch my code, guys, there are the, quote, human obfuscators. <laughs> People whose code is so badly written, it looks like obfuscator output, of course, with no unit tests. Even pair programming doesn't help this case. Yeah, you can punch them or take the keyboard away. Yeah. So you have to just hope that you never have to touch this code, and if you do... You rewrite it from scratch. <laughs> that was in reference to, you know, one of the things we were talking about around collective code ownership in the last show on uh, patterns and any patterns around the uh, the calendar. And uh, obviously, there are ways to defeat any system. In fact, Steve at the time, and again, this is months ago, responded, right, that pairing should certainly help prevent this kind of code, but it can be difficult to work with that code. Yes. And uh, you can run right out of the code. Write unit tests around it. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and single character variable names. It's just no reason. <laughs> a dollar sign. There you go. So, Jan Patrick, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media. We publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We kill werewolves with them. Your comments are made of silver. <laughs> so let me formally introduce our guests here. Steve Smith is an entrepreneur and software developer with a passion for building quality software as effectively as possible. Steve has published several courses on Pluralsight covering DDD, solid design patterns, and software architecture. Probably more by now. He's a Microsoft MVP, a frequent speaker at developer conferences, an author, and a trainer. Steve's available for mentoring, training, and application assessment engagements through his site, ardalis.com. That's A-R-D-A-L-I-S.com. And Brendan Enrich is a passionate software developer, focusing a great deal of his time on agile and software craftsmanship methodologies. Brendan is a proponent of continuous learning and improvement, who believes in cultivating strong development communities. Along with other like-minded individuals, Brendan has co-founded a training technology company called DevIQ. Little company you might have heard of. And welcome back, Steve and Brendan. Thanks, Carl. Thank you. Absolutely. So do you have a calendar this time, or are we just going through a list? We actually have uh, another Kickstarter. We we did a Kickstarter last year, if you recall, for the 2016 calendar. Yeah. Uh, did a show with you guys that helped uh, kick that off. And uh, we're a little bit later this year because that one was in June of uh, 2015 that we launched the Kickstarter. Um, and we have launched one today uh, for, for another calendar for next year. Okay. And so is the idea you want to put some of these out here on the show and let people uh, vote on them or just give you feedback in general? Well, we were thinking we would just talk about software craftsmanship in general, principles, mm -hmm. patterns, anti-patterns, uh, things like that. Uh, some of them will be topics that have been in the calendars in the past. Some might not. And certainly if, uh, if commenters have, have preferences, we, we definitely want to hear about them. Uh, or they can leave a comment on the Kickstarter and tell us what they'd like there after they back the project. Yeah, of course. That's excellent. So uh, are there any new thoughts in... Uh, in, in, in patterns and anti-patterns and software craftsmanship since the last time we talked? I mean, it seems like there are things that you should do and there are things that you should not do and there are highly effective habits of successful craftsmanship, uh, craftsmen. Well, there's always new technology coming down the pipe and, and as the new technology comes into play, the, the best practices, if you will, um, that apply they, there, there aren't any best practices that always apply. Everything is dependent on context. And I think that's one thing that never changes. So, you know, for one thing uh, that I'm working with now that's changing is uh, we're moving more toward smaller frameworks like ASP.NET Core just yeah, shipped. Right. Uh, and microservices are, are very popular now as a, as a architectural pattern. Um, these are things that have been around for some time, but I think are more relevant now than they were a few years ago. Yep, it's one of those things that tends to change as time goes on. 
uh, when we shift from, you know, having more things separated, doing things in the browser, uh, the advent of hosting all of your stuff in the cloud instead of hosting it locally has really changed up the architectures and patterns that everybody's using. Uh, communication machines, everything's been shifting. So okay. a lot's the same, a lot's different. Yeah, so any patterns that weren't a big deal a while back when we were doing anything on-prem suddenly become a bigger deal when it's all in the cloud. Yes. Yes. And and structuring applications, uh, and, you know, the architecture is much more frequently done as small modules that uh, can be strung together in a pipeline, whether that's using, you know, Amazon Lambda or or Azure for similar purposes where there's an explicit service that just runs some code. Uh, or in your own application, for instance, when you're structuring an ASP.NET Core application, you might just build a pipeline using middleware to do a lot of the work, just like you might do uh, in a Node.js application. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It, it, it's interesting, this idea, and, and I've heard even folks like Scott Guthrie use this. They're trying to build tools that make you fall into the pit of success. And so in some respects, it's like there there are pattern behaviors you don't have to worry about so much because the tooling basically leads you that way. Like, you, you can't build non-objects in C-sharp. It's always there. So, you know, that whole that whole practice is kind of by default today. Right. And there's some things that C-sharp is is adding over time that, uh, that kind of play into this discussion. For instance, uh, one of the most common problems in software that, that produces bugs is the use of null. It's been called like the billion dollar mistake, but I think it's probably closer to a trillion by now. And <laughs> the, there's design patterns that address that, like the null object design pattern. But C sharp is, is, you know, slowly over time adding more and more support for, uh, things that will easily check for null or things that will enforce that uh, a type can't be null. Uh, and those are going to, I think, improve the quality of software by eliminating that common source of, of errors. Nice. Right. Yeah. Just that, that goes away because you can't, you, it just isn't a big deal anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Personally, as a, as a .NET developer who's been coding in C sharp for, I don't know, like 15 or more years, it seems like at this point, my biggest ask for the, the .NET team would be for the null reference exception to please just tell me which variable it was that was null. Right. <laughs> Apparently that's really hard. Yeah, they always tell us that that one's a really hard thing to put in there, but I would even accept, tell me the type of the object that was null, because then I can figure out which one it was. But right. but if it's null, there's nothing there, right? I mean, the only thing that's there is in the language itself, where you say, my intent is to create an object of this type. But Well, the CLR should know the type of the thing that it was trying to gain a, a reference to, or that it was trying to access a property of, or a method right. of. Um, right. And that's what would be helpful if yeah. if we can't get the name, which I would have to believe they would be able to get the name at that point too. Um, but like Brendan said, the the type would be helpful. You know, yeah. anything besides, hey, something was null, right? I agree. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and you know, with Rosalind, it should be even easier and just as fast. Exactly. Yeah. But there's yeah. also an air of I'm throwing up my hands in desperation at that point, right? That the the the, 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 the system just goes, there was a null. I'm very sad. <laughs> yep. Sorry. It reminds me of when you would get a, a memory dump error when you're working in C and you have a you know a pointer that's accessing something that you know is out of range and it, you would just get a useless error message and the program would crash. Like, okay, that's not helpful. Or a Windows would just hard restart. Like, boom. Like, all right, <laughs> let's call that an error. All right. Well, Steve, you sent us a list of um, principles, practices, and some of these we've talked about before from the calendars, but some are new that we haven't talked about. So maybe we should uh, just sort of pick a few. Start with one of your favorites. Uh, I guess I'll start with one of my favorites, which is, uh, I'll, I'll go with an anti-pattern to start, uh, the death march pattern. <laughs> uh, it is one that I think, it's got one of the best names because everybody knows what it means if they've been on one. It's that project where... Everybody on the team knows it's leading to failure, can see it. They know it's coming, but they just keep pressing forward. You know, whoever it is that's in charge of the project says, no, you just got to keep going. You keep putting in overtime. You keep working. But, you know, even though you do this, it's still going to fail. Right. It is just that project that is doomed. And everybody knows it, but just keeps on working. Yeah. There is an air of wishful thinking there, right? It's like, you know, if we just keep going, maybe a miracle will happen. 
Well, it's, someone seems to think that. Larry Miller, <laughs> comedian, said it best when he says, what are these, these people that, you know, get divorced and then get remarried? He's like, that's like going to the fridge and, oh, this milk is sour. Well, maybe tomorrow it'll be fresh. Put it back. <laughs> <laughs> put, it, put it back in. Yeah. Let's hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah, the thing about Death March, that one's, it's usually outside the developer's hands. Like, the only thing they can do other than make uh, backhanded comments about the project or, or commiserate at the at the water cooler or the bar after work is try and get on another project at that company or go find another organization. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that's uh, oftentimes outside the developer's hands but I think is, is really important, uh, and we did use it in our first calendar back in 2011, is uh, the principle shipping is a feature. Right. And your software must have it. Right. Yeah. I was advising a, a software startup um, for the last year or so. And my advice from day one was, you know, find a minimum viable product and ship it. Uh, and they they recently pulled the plug on their project um, after a year and a half of pivoting multiple times, you know, privately, but never actually shipping anything publicly. Uh, and it's, it's really hard to to make it as a startup if you never ship something and start getting real customer feedback and and hopefully revenue. Right. Well, just that basic validation of, you know, is this something? Is this something that anybody wants, can use, or anything like that? You can live in that delusion for a long time. Right. Yep. And another problem is a lot of times it's the developers that just want to keep on rebuilding it like oh i didn't i didn't do it nicely enough this time i, I just gotta right. tweak this right or we're gonna rework this part yeah and then that's a challenge because we're talking about software craftsmanship here and and too many uh it can look like we're just gold plating our code mm. and and it's you know sort of uh ivory tower mentality that i'm, I'm going to try and make this be a best practice just for the sake of my code being beautiful and not because i'm trying to add value to the business and the value that, that you get from, from software that is well-crafted is agility later. The cost of, of change today is, is a function of how much uh, care you took with your code and how much quality you built into it yeah. in the past. Uh, and so there's, there's context of, of how much effort should you put into quality sometimes, uh, depending on the developer and depending on the project, that will affect to what extent you want to architect the, the code or or follow, you know, what, what might be considered best practices on another project. Yeah. It reminds me of, I guess, sorry, related to, but it reminds me of, uh, another anti-pattern death by planning. Yes. And that's true. That's sort of a analysis paralysis, uh, anti-pattern where you spend so much time trying to plan things. Uh, and, and sometimes with waterfall, you get this where every single requirement wants to be totally locked down before you'll start developing. And, For some things, like you know, maybe building a, a, a spaceship that's going to go to Mars, you know, that might make sense to to have that level of of things being nailed down. But for most software applications, where again you're trying to ship it rapidly and get feedback quickly and then adjust, uh, it ends up just slowing down your ability to ship. Sure. Yep. And it's not actually just a waterfall projects because there are uh, plenty of projects doing agile that start adding meetings to groom their backlog and will have people sitting in a room for multiple hours, just grooming the backlog. And then they're going to groom those same stories again a week later and spend more hours. And they just keep burning meetings repeatedly. Yeah. Right. You also get uh, developer fatigue. You know, they developers want to be writing code and being productive. You know, you swamp them with meetings about planning for too much and you know they'll tune out yeah especially if it's the same thing every week or it's yeah. or if it's not making a meaningful uh visible difference to to the product or right. the application that they're working on i've met with customers before and they've you know had meeting after meeting after meeting going over the same thing just bringing new people in it's almost like they want to you know to if they do this enough times and they hear the story enough times then they'll be convinced to actually pull the trigger on the project you know and it's really infuriating that it's just like, look, what are you trying to do? You're trying to establish trust, uh, and it's not happening for you. Why is why are we going over the same things over and over again? 
Well, that can also be an indicator of a lack of strong leadership or, or backing of a project in an organization where they're going to keep on having meetings with various stakeholders and get everybody in the room so that later on, if, if the project doesn't work out or it fails or they don't get the funding they wanted, they can say, but we had this meeting and you were there. Why didn't you say something then? Mm-hmm. And it's it's uh, just kind of a CYA uh, political tactic that's yeah. used by some managers to, to pull other people in and, and get their sort of implicit, if not explicit, backing of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think both these things come back to the same core program, death marching and death by planning, which is, you know, you don't really know what the goal is in a piece of software. You're death marching, keep trying to build something, hoping to get to a finish line nobody actually knows the existence of. Like, you, you don't have a deliverable. You don't know what that even looks like. Uh, and, and death by planning is the same thing. You're trying to plan out stuff where you can't possibly know the answer because you don't have a good, you know, real goal. I, I'm always worried about software developers whose measurement of success is anything other than, you know, the customer's ability to use the app or to actually get value from it. Yeah. One of the patterns or, or I guess, uh, principles that we had a calendar on, I forget what year it was, a couple, several years ago. Uh, the, the title of it was know where you're going. And, and the point of it is that the, the whole team, the whole, all the developers should know what the end goal is so that in the absence of explicit instruction, because you don't want to waste your time micromanaging your developers, they, they know what the ultimate goal is and they can be empowered to make decisions that they feel help us get to that goal. And, and delivering yeah. software is the only way to get it to that goal. So right away, that's a priority. It's actually getting software in the hands of the customer. Yep. Until a customer has it. You haven't really built anything at all. Right. And, then, and certainly it can't possibly be good. Like the idea that you would polish something that the customer's never seen is kind of shocking, really. Yeah. Yep. I mean, the only argument there I think that you can make is on the what the customer sees, because you there's also that element of you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. So if you're trying to make right. like a big splash, you want to make sure that the the user experience is is good or at least good enough on day one, because if it's horrible, mm. they're going to tell their friends it's horrible and you might lose out there. But uh, as far as the back end code, you know, as long as it works, the right. customers never see it and they're not going to know the difference. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way, no way to make it better. Although, I mean, there's a counter argument to that great UI problem too, which we've all run into in the early days of our development career, where the prototype looks good enough and feels good enough to like ship it. You're like, but, but, but it's a prototype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And I, I think that's changed some, though. I think most people aren't happy with Battleship Gray, Windows Forms apps that have never been touched by a designer. I think customers right. have come to expect more today yeah. than, than they did 10 or 20 years ago. Well, who's still prototyping in Windows Forms? Probably <sighs> um, a lot of people, but not me. Probably a lot of people. Well, yeah. Yeah. But wasn't there a Sketch XAML that, you know, because the, the other side of this, was it SketchUp or SketchFlow? Sketch that flow. was really a because one of the things you fall into when you start showing nice UIs to the users, they start instead of talking about the functionality, they talk about the color and the font. You know, they say yep. this is not important right now. Yep. So you know, the, the sketch flow idea was let us abstract as much UI away as possible. So there's just nothing to talk about. The answer is always this will not be the final UI, yeah. so that we can actually focus on workflow. Looks like it was drawn in pencil on a napkin. Right. Yeah. Balsamic does the same thing. And it intentionally looks like a sketch so that nobody gets fixated on colors and yeah. fonts and things like that. And it uses Comic Sans for its font. Awesome. Yeah, so you know it's ah, horrible. Yeah. If that doesn't <laughs> turn them off, nothing will. <laughs> although, <laughs> although, again, um, real quick, flags over objects. Is that like a theme park? Out in Ohio? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Six flags. Uh, that, that one's an anti-pattern where... Instead of putting behavior into an object, you just give a, a flag or an enum or a status code or something, and then all the other code in the application, whatever it needs to do something with that object, it checks that property and then has a switch statement or an if block that does some behavior. Mm. And the the idea there, the reason why that's an anti-pattern is it tends to result in a lot of duplication, uh, tends to result in, in anemic uh, objects that don't have a lot of behavior inside. They just have some state. Yeah. And, and so the over objects means that you're preferring to just give it a state flag, uh, instead of giving it some actual behavior, uh, inside of that object. Right. Right. 
And it can be as simple as, I don't know, taking a, a, a Boolean property that's like, you know, called, let's just simplify it and call it on, right? You know, and when on is true, something happens. And when on is false, that thing doesn't happen, right? Instead yep. of doing that, you actually make two different methods that are, uh, you know, that are one turn it on and turn it off. It, it's simplifying, but that's that's what you're really talking about here it could be yes there could be methods for changing the state and that's that's one consideration the other thing is that whatever behavior there is like when it's on uh i expect the the object to be formatted a certain way and when it's off i expect it to be formatted a different way yeah well instead of having a bunch of different ways uh to format the object that are all in if statements in say your user interface layer maybe you've got a, a method on the object called format and inside that method, it knows whether or not it's on, and it, it chooses yeah. the correct format. And now that decision is made in just one location yes. uh, in your code instead of scattered in many places. Great, great example. Hey, uh, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yes, it's time for quiz. Is the following a pattern or an anti-pattern? Ready? Ready. Death by delivering jokes in which the joke teller is the only one that thinks it's funny. <laughs> pattern or anti-pattern uh, I think it's a pattern of this show anyway <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not by design Well, maybe it is, I don't know It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express To one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Brian Richardson. Congratulations, uh, Brian. Golf clap for you, sir. Awesome. And right now, Brian Richardson is driving off the road. Wah! Um, <laughs> we kill another listener. Yeah, there goes another one. Uh, he just won the D experience subscription from developer express. Of course, that's a big pile of awesome from our friends over there. And if you don't know what we just did, go to dotnet rocks.com, click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions and join the dotnet rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsor. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. We also ask our guests, and Brandon, we'll start with you. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Uh, that's a pretty easy one. Uh, right now, I want to get a HoloLens development kit yeah. and probably get started messing around with stuff. It looks like a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun, but I got a tip for you. If you're What's having that? a party with 100 people, don't just hand it to somebody and say, here, play with that while I cook. <laughs> just not a good <laughs> idea. End well? well, you know, no, it didn't get broken, but, you know, you have to Did keep you- your eye. It's just not a toy. You know, I got to remember that. So mm. supervised uh, friend usage is always advised. Unsupervised is the anti-pattern. Okay. <laughs> How about you, Steve? What would you get with five grand? Uh, five grand. I would, I would put a dent in, uh, saving up for a Tesla, I think. You buy the windshield, in other words. That's right. Yeah, I mean, one, <laughs> one tire. Charger. If they, uh, if they start doing the Powerwall batteries, uh, I'm, I'm on the wait list for that. I don't know what those will cost, but, uh, oh, probably yeah. 5,000 would be close on that. Yeah, they were thinking about seven grand for the big one. Okay. Hmm. So, so I'm I'm a Tesla fan, although I haven't uh, spent any money on them yet. But, but one right. of these days. All right, good. And, uh, one of the things I saw when I was in Europe is BMW has a new electric car coming out that uh, I think is literally aimed squarely at the Model Three, and uh, their their whole claim to fame is that they'll release first. So well, it's uh it's getting interesting. 
Well, also Ford, you sent me something about Ford committing to a line of electric cars or automated cars. Yeah, Ford, the arguably the most conservative car company in the world, saying by 2021 in five years, they will be shipping in quantity, mass producing a fully automated car as in no steering wheel, no pedals. Wow. Kind of car. Oh. Well, yeah, that, that was exciting. Know, that was just this week they announced that. Yeah. And, it, and for me, who did a geek out three years ago saying this is going to happen in 10 years, I'm feeling a little smug. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's coming fast. I'm really looking forward to that. It is. Yeah, uh, the automated car is really something. Yeah, right. there's a, a Google futurist was talking about how that's going to change the landscape for us. Um, you know, instead of having parking lots, we'll have places where you can queue up and and wait for an automated car to pick you up, and uh, you know, folks will be able to take their car and just put it out in the fleet and make money while they're at work. And you know, these are these are ideas that you know maybe they won't come to fruition exactly the way he's uh, foretelling it, but. But you can kind of see how this will really be a game changer for how people spend their time, how people spend their money uh, on a huge part of most people, at least in North America, um, their their day and their their dollar goes toward feeding these cars. Yeah. Well, my, my argument would be Ford will never sell these cars to individuals. They, they may not even sell them to companies. They may just provide them as a service, right? They put an Uber client out and you simply order up the vehicle you need. And people will start out with that just being your secondary vehicle, right? Rather than having a car that you, you know, your main car and one you use once in a while. It's like, ah, we'll just call up the the Mm. Ford when we need it. And then after a while, you're like, I'm always doing this. I'm not driving my car at all. But the the whole thing about getting rid of individual ownership is it dodges the liability problem of if your car, you know, gets into an accident in automated mode, who's responsible? What if all of them were just owned by Ford? Yeah, they build them, they maintain them, and they're dealing with all of that on mass. And you just use it as a service when you need it. Yeah, and the other thing that's going to have a dramatic impact on in the next five or ten years is going to be rental companies because right now it's Uber and Lyft are taking out the taxi companies, but the rental sure. agencies have maybe taken a little bit of a hit from folks using Uber instead. But if you if you want that, uh, you know, the the flexibility of having your own car, the rental agency is great. Once yeah. you get to the point where automated cars are just there and they're they're everywhere as a service, you know, even the rental agencies are going to be obsolete. Yep. Yeah. The, the big one is the truck drivers. Automated truck driving will probably be first. It'll be massive. And it actually is one of the largest job categories in the United States. So on one hand, it'll, right. because the, the car, the, these automated vehicles will run 24 hours a day, their productivity will go up dramatically, which means shipping costs will drop substantially. And at the same time, It'll cause massive unemployment. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how we cope with that. That is something that we have to deal with uh, more than we have uh, going forward, I think, is is the effects of technology on, on the workforce. Talk about yep, an yep. anti-pattern. Humans Holy are crap. no longer well, needed. Robots do everything. I've been talking about this on .NET Rocks since 2002, is that sometimes it seems like, you know, programmer will be the only job left. <laughs> I'm worried ours might disappear, yeah. too, actually. Yeah. I'm not confident. It's al- it's yeah. already something with remote technology that's easily outsourced to cheaper countries. So, uh, you know, how long before it's it's automated further? Who knows? Mm. I'm actually surprised. It sounds like we're going to have fully automated uh, driverless cars before we're going to have the same thing for trains. And you would think that trains would be a little simpler because they're just on rails. They don't have as many controls to deal with. Yeah, we have fully automated trains in Vancouver. Right. Our light rail system has no uh, operators at all. There are several countries that have completely automated trains. Sure. That's true. That's true. I meant in the U.S. And yeah. I don't. Yeah. We have trains running through Ohio constantly, and I never see any that don't have a, an engineer up front. Yeah. What's the matter? Don't you like the Acela? <laughs> I, I live in the Northeast <laughs> Corridor. The Acela barely makes a difference. Yeah. They, they spent, you know, billions of dollars with this train, and it, yeah, it might get you to from Boston to D.C. an hour earlier, but uh, yeah. it's not all that big a deal. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. And here in the West, trains are for cargo. They're not for people. Yeah, they're they're barely for people in, in Ohio either. Uh, we took a train to Chicago with the family just uh, for the experience. We had to drive an hour to the train station. We had to be there at 3 o'clock in the morning. It was two hours late uh, on the Amtrak. Uh, and then it took us to Chicago with a few stops, but it took longer than it would have taken just to drive to Chicago. 
And then right. when we got to Chicago, we didn't have a car and we had to, you know, have a bus pass. And, and, and that was interesting, uh, getting around the city that way and seeing it from that perspective. But the, the train ride wasn't convenient at all. It was, it was more expensive and less convenient than just driving. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. All truth. right. Duct tape coder. Is that where you take a coder who doesn't know what they're talking about? You put duct tape over their mouth so they'll shut up and stop. Oh, I wish we could do that to the duct tape coder. <laughs> duct tape there. <laughs> <laughs> Often praised developer among the team because they always seem to get amazing things done in remarkably short amounts of time. And that's because they're just patching everything together with duct tape. Anytime you need to change, it's just hacked on. It's something's broken. Oh, mm-hmm. this will fix it. They take mm-hmm. simple solutions, shortcuts. Uh, another word for duct tape coder, a similar one is the cowboy coder. It's yeah. the, the person that's just doing crazy stuff and making it work. The problem is usually it's the rest of the team that's fixing all of the things the duct tape coder is breaking or leaving unfinished or when you have to go in and maintain alter change that code none of it's easy to fix because it's just hacked together starting with readability yes exactly the readability is terrible yeah some of it comes down to whether you value your code as a as a business asset that you want to keep healthy or not um so if, if you're just trying to you know sort of get something done uh the duct tape coder that's able to to kind of play it fast and loose and get things done quick uh, is is kind of like uh, maybe that guy that'll do some work for you for cash and and won't necessarily file the permits um, <laughs> right. and get it done cheap, but uh, but maybe when you're going in for heart surgery, you want to talk to the guy that that doesn't brand himself as a duct tape coder that's going to be you know operating on you, right? Yeah, that uh, shipping is a feature we talked about a long time ago. Is actually when you're uh, dealing with startups, for example, and that you really want to launch something. The duct tape coder is actually slightly less bad sometimes because the duct tape coder can get you something that you can ship. Yeah. Now, the problem is the developer that comes in afterwards is going to be a little unhappy, but he got you something you could ship. And if you take too long building it, you didn't make it. So the duct tape coder, while it is an anti-pattern, there is a place where they're not so bad. Got it. That's true. There's got to be a balance act between the duct tape coder and the, you know, death by planning guy. Like, yep. where's the middle ground? Well, and that's where I mentioned early on that there's context here and whether or not something is appropriate. Um, another anti-pattern we, we have that's tied to this is called fast beats right, um, where it's better to just get it done quick than to do it right. And that's where a lot of developers spend their day is they have dead, deadline pressure and they know that there's a better way to do something, but they're forced to do it, you know, the shortcut hacky way just because they've got a deadline they've got to meet. If you're right. a startup and, and you really need to get something shipped before your funding runs out, that might be appropriate. Or if you're writing a prototype that you just need a demo at a trade show and it's, you know, it's Monday and the thing needs to be done by Wednesday, you know, fast is going to be more important than whether or not it's perfect code with, you know, 100% test coverage or whatever. Uh, the other thing to take into consideration here is let's, let's think about where, uh, quality does matter. And, and going at speed is important, but it's not the only thing that's important. Some developers write lousy code quickly and mm. either don't have the tools and experience and training to write better code, uh, or it takes them longer because they just that's not how they spend most of their time, so they're not as comfortable with it. Right. Other developers can write code just as fast and produce quality code because they've got more experience, they've had more training, whatever that might be. So I think as an industry, one of our challenges when it comes to software quality is to get more developers over that that point in the curve where they can go fast and deliver quality uh, faster than they can write crappy code. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's got to be a skills threshold there somewhere. I don't know exactly what it looks like. It, it also depends on the project. Like, the net, you know... If you work on the same thing over and over again, you do definitely get better at it. But often, you know, we only get to work on this project once and we never do anything like it ever again. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why uh, a lot of us push for the idea of doing programming exercises or katas uh, so mm-hmm. that you get really, really used to doing things the right way. You get used to the idea of here's how I do it correctly. And if you repeat and do those sorts of things, you get used to building design patterns the way they're supposed to be 
writing code that's cleaner, and that just becomes your standard. So that's the way you do things quickly. It's what you're used to if you do it right and practice. Right, because you're going to fall back to habit, and so you want to develop the the good habits so you can kind of fall into that pit of success uh, when when you are under the gun and you've got to get something done quick. You do it the way that's comfortable, and if that happens to be the right way to do it or or the, the way to produce quality code, then so much the better. Yeah. I find very few programmers actually practice programming. They just do the work. You know, it's sort of the opposite of the athlete. Of course, the Olympics are going on right now where, you know, these athletes have practiced all year to perform, you know, once, you know, there's 10 minutes of actual performance for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. And, and I feel like in development, we're always writing code to a purpose. We very rarely write code to a practice. Right. Yeah. You're, most organizations aren't going to pay you to do that. So if it's if it's something you uh, you value, it's something you do on your own time. Uh, and there's there's a whole lot of advocates that suggest that you know programmers really need to spend some of that time on practice. But uh, there's only so many hours in a day, and and there's folks that want to be done at five o'clock and spend time with their kids. Mm-hmm. And there's always something new to learn, even if you're not spending time actively practicing. There's another framework. Uh, you know, every five minutes is another JavaScript framework you have to learn about. Uh, it's hard to keep up. Yeah. True. Yeah, I guess it's it's a question of how you handle your career per se. Definitely. All right, let's pick another one. Uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, mushroom management. It's another mm-hmm. uh, one that's more organizational than than on the individual developer, but uh, the the name comes from the idea that the the best way to manage your team is to keep them in the dark and keep feeding them crap uh, <laughs> nice. in terms of information. Um, and, and so we, we had fun, uh, producing that one for the calendar a few years ago. Uh, you can kind of see the, the process that we used on the video that we have for the Kickstarter. It kind of goes through the sketches and, and ideation of it. Um, but it's a, it's a poor practice because you want your team to be all aligned and, and heading in the same direction. Um, yeah. one of the things I wanted to mention earlier is like in the military, uh, I was in the army for a number of years we learned a a five paragraph format for an operations order. And the very first thing is the mission. Uh, And you lead with that because, you know, you might get interrupted or your, you know, your person you're giving the order to might, might forget the rest of it. As long as they remember the mission, which is like one sentence of who, what, where, when, why that you're doing, uh, that's the most important piece of information that they have. And, and in the software project that that's the, the vision of, of what are we trying to do? Whose problems are we trying to solve? What is the, the main goal we're trying to get toward? And if the team at least knows that much and, and believe that that's really where you're going, uh, that makes a big difference. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, This is like the opposite of the know where you're going that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So helps the team to make decisions on their own without guidance. So uh, if you're not going to micromanage them, then they need to know where they're going. So and if you've kept them in the dark the whole time, they can't make any decisions on their own because they don't really know what's going on. Right. But there are genuinely places where it's like we never let developers speak to customers. You know, we have it. We have analysts for that. Right. And, and there's there's organizations where we don't want the developers to speak to customers because, oh, my gosh, have you seen our developers? <laughs> oh, we don't want customers to see them. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not wearing any pants. The developers <laughs> are revolting. They certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> But there's other there's other organizations where developers are rotated into support roles, uh, and I think this is a, a great thing for companies to do because it lets those developers see the actual way that customers are using their product and the problems yeah. they're encountering, uh, and feel the pain firsthand, so they can sort of empathize with the customer and the user. And when they rotate back onto the product team, they have a new appreciation for how real people are using that product. Yeah, we we did that at Strange Loop. A developer would spend three months with system engineers installing the product. And then, boy, that changed your life. I mean, and it was <laughs> two different ways, too. One was, obviously, it's like, we got to build our product a better way. The other one was just realizing, you know, those guys who don't write code, they work hard, too. Hmm. Yeah, and suddenly the installer becomes much more important. Yeah. yeah. And it's just how well that stuff works. And, and good error messages, like understanding what went wrong. Once you once you have to diagnose your own crappy error message, you've got a pretty good idea of why you need to make it a better error message. Right. Yeah, that's one of our best practices is descriptive error messages, which, you know, like I mentioned, the null reference exception. 
usually not very helpful. No. Right. Yeah, it's just a sorry. But the other side of that is really being able to see what's going on inside of a system, just that that better visibility in general. Um, That was Adrian Cockcroft's line from Netflix. When we started calling the developer at 3 in the morning for uh, system failures, we had a lot fewer failures. Yeah, Yeah. it's funny how that works. Yeah, oddly enough. And why little organizations, little startups where it's just a few people and and it's effectively no ops, right? You built it, you run it. uh, These things get nailed down faster. Yeah, and, and that helps too. That in those organizations, a lot of times they're they're dog fooding or they're they're right. eating their own dog food with regard to their product, uh, and that's another you know best practice um, that that folks follow. Uh, there was a funny tweet I saw earlier this week. Someone posted the the, the manager is saying, "Hey, I, I bought a hundred pounds of dog food. Somehow that's supposed to make you guys leaner. It's in the break room." <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, just putting all those pieces together on the mushroom management thing, we're not asking developers to have to talk to customers, but we need developers to know what the customers are saying. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, th- I think they're different things, right? It's just like having real feedback and showing how to measure that effectively. The funny thing is I've never met a developer who didn't have a set of goals. It's just a question of whether or not those goals were relevant to the project or the customer at all. If you don't give them coherent goals, they're going to make some. Right. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Something I think that's that's really helped that is the the move toward more open and social coding. And I think GitHub mm-hmm. has played a huge role here, um, especially for some of the Microsoft technologies that I work with, like uh, .NET and ASP.NET. Uh, you can see all the conversations going on both internally with Microsoft members and with the community through issues and pull requests and things like that, uh, it's it's really cool to kind of see that interaction. And you know that those developers on the product team are getting more feedback and more uh, guidance from their customers than they were previously. The only danger there is that maybe they're only getting guidance from the loudest customers, but that's that can a- always be a problem. Yeah, it's always the case, isn't it? Yeah, squeaky wheels. Squeaky wheel syndrome, yeah. So I'm looking through the list here, and, and so many of these are, are ones that we take for granted, you know, that uh, old guys like us remember very well. But some of the, you know, newer developers or people who have been working for five years or less might not know what spaghetti code is, for example. Yeah, spaghetti code is a, is a code smell or an anti-pattern uh, referring to the fact that your code doesn't really have any organization and uh, you know, stuff is just all tightly coupled within it so that when you start kind of pulling on a thread uh, you know, the whole sweater comes apart because <laughs> you know, everything is attached to everything. And it's just this, this big mess of, uh, of interactions. Uh, so having things like layering and, and encapsulation and, and some of these other uh, best practices and, and principles like separation of concerns uh, can all make it so that your code is less spaghetti-like and, and more structured. You want your code to be more like Legos than a than a pile of noodles. And, you know, we can also see that earlier languages and platforms like ASP.NET, before that basic with line numbers, are typical platforms that encouraged you to write spaghetti code, uh, especially yep. ASP. Oh, my God. You know. yeah, I was just thinking classic ASP was definitely like this because everything was mixed together in, in script that just ran from the top down with include files was the only way yeah. you could separate things. Right. Your script was in the same file as your HTML. It was all just linked together, yeah. so it was often hard to tell what was even what. And you could have HTML that embedded script, and you could also have script that spits out HTML, and you could have both in the same file. It was just mm-hmm. a mess. Yeah. Right. And then- Trying to figure out what was going on could be like, follow this include file to that include file to the next include file. Yeah. It really was a tool that didn't help you organize data. Although with enough discipline, you could do it better. But I I think stuff like MVC is just enforcing a good practice. Yep. Yeah. That's the uh, pit of success that uh, they're helping you fall into now. Yep. That's a good one. Should we talk about some helpful design patterns that maybe we haven't uh, talked about in a while? Like I like, don't call us, we'll call you. That's an interesting one. Sure, that's the uh, the Hollywood principle because you know you you call somebody up and and you're trying to get a, a job in Hollywood and the, the classic answer they'll get is 
yeah, yeah, you were great, but uh, don't call us. We'll call you. Right. Give us your info. We'll get back to you. The the idea with that is it's it's related to the dependency inversion principle where uh, instead of having your code basically run the show, uh, you allow something else to execute your code. Uh, and so your code sort of lives inside of a larger framework. Uh, and a lot of uh, application frameworks work that way. So when you're writing an ASP.NET application, like with web forms, for instance, or, or even MVC, um, the, the outside framework of ASP.NET is calling into your, your classes, your controllers, your pages, um, instead of you having to worry about how to launch the server and, and run all the pieces of it um, when you write your ASP.NET application. Yeah. Oh, so many to go. Uh, we should, we ought to do this on a regular basis. This is fun. I think we have been. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we talk once or twice a year. Well, even yeah. more regular, I think, maybe. Sure. Well, we could just yep. pick a few and kind of dive deeper into them. We could do that, yeah. So we have uh, a Kickstarter, uh, 30 days. Yep. Yep. Launched uh, okay. today, which by the time the show goes live will be like five or six days ago, mm-hmm. I'm guessing. And then... Uh, and the, and ultimately, this is for uh, getting a new calendar, right? And and for folks that don't know, this is a a wall calendar that's printed out that has uh, 2017 has 12 different principles or practices or anti patterns in some kind of humorous form, staged photo. Yeah. Yep. And and you'll see some examples of them on the Kickstarter page, uh, along with kind of how we get there. Uh, we had great support from the community and and from companies that want to. Uh, get their logo out in front of uh, a lot of developers. We're we're going to print probably about four or five thousand of these calendars if if uh, it's the same as in previous years, and they're going to get hung up in offices, cubicles, and team rooms all over the world. Uh, and for one month, you could have your company associated with the uh, software craftsmanship uh, calendar. Which, depending on what you sell and and what's important to you, that could be a good recruiting tool or a sales tool for you. Absolutely. Well, that's great. And do we give the uh, link for the Kickstarter? Yeah, the link for the Software Craftsmanship Calendar Kickstarter is bit.ly slash sc2017. And that's all lowercase. Right, so it's like Software Craftsmanship 2017, bit.ly whack sc2017. Well, guys, thank you very much. This is It's always great talking about these things with you guys. I can't wait for the next one to come out. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a